2020. We all know what happened then. In 2020, a lady from the Wall Street Journal, her name was Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bernstein. She had written about the benefits of prayer. Again, this is the Wall Street Journal. The benefits of prayer that people were experiencing during COVID, during the pandemic, during the shutdown. And she researched and interviewed a lot of people and also looked at the fact that Google turned out the highest amount of search for prayer in 2020. But the onset of the coronavirus had increased worldwide interest in prayer. Google searches skyrocketed. She interviewed numerous people who turned to prayer to handle the issues of life and, and everything that was going on, to handle their anxiety, to handle their fear. They were turning to prayer. They said, even some researchers say that their studies on prayer show that it could calm your nervous system. Think about that. There's health, physical health benefits to prayer. That it calms your nervous system, shutting down your fight or flight response. That it even makes you less reactive to the negative emotions and allows you to be a little less angry. Again, this is the worldly perspective of what people were doing during that pandemic with prayer. Another research has shown that the most effective prayer results come from those who view God in a positive light. Hmm, interesting. Because there are those that pray without God in mind. They don't believe necessarily that God exists and or interferes in our life. He doesn't, as Benjamin Franklin said, govern the affairs of men, but yet in times of panic, distress, worry, fear, anxiety, or sickness, people always turn to prayer. There's something about it. But the effective results come from those who view God in a positive light and themselves as a co-laborer with God. Even 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, it says. You are God's building. And so with that, that's what we're going to kind of settle into today. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, let's look at verse 1. In fact, we'll say, let's look at verse 1a. <laughs> and we're going to spend some time with that. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1a says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And there's more to verse 1, and we're going to come back to that. But it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So if we put ourselves in Solomon's shoes as he's going on this walkabout, he is walking up those steps into the temple, if we can visualize that. And he is saying, guard your steps. What does that mean? Watch your step as you enter into the presence of God. Be careful how you approach the house of God. And for us today, I think we can know and we can be assured of that we know today that God is not fixed to a church building. We know that. That the big C church itself is not all the buildings that label themselves as a church or some form of sanctuary but it is the very people of God that trust in him. Why? Because number one, God said, I'm with you wherever you go. He said in Matthew 18, verse 20, uh, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Means we could be down on the lakeshore. We could be at 7-Eleven. If we are gathering together for whatever reason in God's name and with God's purpose in mind, opening his word in the car, on the road, at home, here in a church building, God is with us. 
Matthew 28, 20, he said, when, God, when Christ gave the great commission to all of us, he says, and I am with you to the very end of the age. So wherever we are, God's presence is if we have him in our life. So we're talking about just that, the very presence of God. Uh, Solomon is saying, guard your steps, watch your step as you approach the house of God, because that's what we're talking about. Something people were not taking very serious and maybe don't take very seriously today, the very presence of God with us wherever we are. If you remember in our Light of the World series that we did, leading up to and, and on Christmas morning. We talked about the fact of God dwelling in unapproachable light. God dwelling in unapproachable light, yet it is that very God that asks us and welcomes us to seek his face. He welcomes us into his presence. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. It's what we're called to do. It doesn't mean once a week. It doesn't mean religiously. It doesn't mean that time you only spend in church on Sunday morning or if you're a part of a midweek service or if you happen to be on a missions trip or whatever else. No, we seek his face continually, always, throughout the week, no matter where we're at, no matter what we're doing. Hebrews 4.16, beautiful verse, says this. Let us then with confidence, boldness, Courage, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And where is that grace? That is the very throne of God. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, yeah, we are to fear God reverently in awe because of who he is. But he says, come into my presence. Seek my face. Be with me. Because I've promised that I'm going to be with you wherever you are, no matter where you go. So with that said, as we guard our steps, as we approach the house of God, remember this. If Christ is in you, the spirit of God dwells in you, then wherever you are, God is. Now, I'm going to be very careful. I'm not saying you are God. Please hear me. But wherever you are, God says, I will be. But the holy ground that we stand on wherever we are is just that. If the spirit of God dwells in us, no matter where we're at, if the spirit of God is there, whatever we step on is holy ground. And maybe we can think about it that way and, and remember that as we walk through life, that every step lights up with the holiness and righteousness of God. And if we have that perspective... It may change the way we walk. It may change how we walk. It may change how we interact with society around us. Remember when Moses approached that burning bush. What did the Spirit of God tell him? Take off your sandals for the place that you stand is holy ground. So he welcomes us into his presence, but he says you're standing on holy ground. Scripture also tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ. You guys know what an ambassador is if you follow world governance and world politics. An ambassador is a representative of that nation to other nations. 
He is a sovereign minister in law, in politics, in governments, and economics, and the word of that sovereignty to other nations around the world. And scripture says we are ambassadors for Christ. And, and in another country, in another world, so to speak, where does an ambassador take up residence? In his embassy. And when you step ground on that embassy, where are you? In their nation under their sovereign rule, under their governance. So I want you to picture that as ambassadors of Christ, wherever we set our feet down is our embassy under the sovereign rule of our king. So no matter where we go, what we do, we are representing Christ to the rest of the world. So how you do that is of the utmost importance. Amen. How you do that, how you speak, how you walk, how you interact, you are representing the sovereignty of God. Does that make it a little more clear that we should guard our steps, walk very carefully as we move in and about this life that we have? Not just as you walk up those steps into a church building, but if you are the church, then guard your steps. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I you to listen to this. 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 17 says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That was Christ's prayer in John 17, his high priestly prayer, right? That there be unity in the body, that, that these disciples that I have called, that I've raised up, that they would be one together just as you and I are one, that they would be in us, Jesus speaking. So Paul writes, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And in verse 19, he says, or you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So guard your steps as you approach the house of God, because you, in effect, as an ambassador of Christ, are the temple of God. Where you go, you bring the presence of God with you. I don't know how that makes you feel. I don't know if that gives you pause. If that gives you a moment of reflection, how have I been representing Jesus Christ wherever I go? First Peter chapter one, verse 15 says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So how many times in scripture are we encouraged in how we walk, how we Guard our steps, how we walk worthy of the Lord. Ephesians 4.1 says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. Colossians 1.10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. But this I want you to listen. I love this verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writing to that church and to us says, we exhorted. To exhort means to implore, almost spiritually beg you, each one of you, and encouraged you in compassion and comfort. We implored you, we encouraged you, and we charged you, we insisted that you walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. See, there it is again. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are welcomed into his family, and in his family is a kingdom. It is sovereign, and you essentially immediately become an ambassador of Christ, representing him to the rest of the world. So 
I encourage you, I implore you in compassion and comfort, but in boldness and courage to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You hear that call to be careful how we walk, to watch our step, to guard our steps as we approach the house of God. We are representatives of the Lord. So how are you representing Jesus around you? Okay, that's the first half of verse 1. Ready to move on? So let's keep reading. Verse 1, let's look at verses 1 through 3. So he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So in all that, what is he saying? In the very presence of God, listen. (laughs) I mean, really, do, do we walk into God's presence thinking we have something to offer him? Do we have anything, honestly, that we can offer to the Lord? Can we walk into his presence and say, all right, here, here, God, t- listen, listen to what I have to say to you right now. We have nothing to offer. He's the creator of the world, our king, our Lord. What are we going to offer? But yet, don't we do that through our words? Don't we do that through prayer too often? Okay, listen here, God, this is what I, this is what I expect. This is what I want. This is what I need you to do for me. Are you ready? Listen up. That's what we do oftentimes. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Scripture says. And so because we're very needy people, we go to our God and say, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Thank you, I'm on my way. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, but we also are told that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. So we need to learn to be quiet in the presence of God. And when we're quiet, we listen We need to learn to listen. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. But also Psalm 19 verse 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be what? Pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we're to be still and quiet. But if we do open our mouth, let it be sweet Let it be acceptable to who God is. Now, how do we get to that point? If out of the abundance our our uh, excuse me, out of the abundance of our heart our mouth speaks, then it says there in Psalm 19, we ought to meditate. But the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. So what do we do when we meditate? I'm not talking about some new age crisscross applesauce with your fingers like this, and mm, that's not the type of meditation we're talking about. It's when you think deeply about the things of God. When you reflect on his goodness and who he really is. See, if we can actually tear apart that word meditate, you know what it can be uh, translated as? A melody. A song. See, what are we going to be doing in eternity? For eternity? With the rest of our brethren in glory in heaven? Singing praise to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We are going to praise God forevermore. 
So when we meditate upon who he is now, meditate in that and let the song, let the joy, the worship of your heart because of who he is, the magnificent God, Lord Almighty that he is, capture you. And then what? From that, out of the abundance of my worship, out of the abundance of my praise, out of the abundance of the melody in my heart because of who God is, then let my word speak. And in that, when you reflect on that and meditate on, on who God is, are you just going to go at the Lord with, yeah, I need this and this, this and this and this and this to make my life better and make my life comfortable and make my life this and this and this? I don't think you will. If we truly reflect on who God is. We don't need to come to God with a bunch of words. We need to come to God with a, a broken heart, a humble spirit saying, I'm here just to receive. So let me come before you and just listen to what you want to give to me today. What can I get from you, O Lord? Not what I can offer you or what I can get to maybe better my life or feel a little more encouraged to carry on. As Solomon continues on in verses 4 through 7, he says, when you vow a vow to God, essentially what is he saying? If you're going to make God a promise, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger... That it was a mistake. Because when God comes to collect that promise, you go, oh, oh I was just kidding. I, I didn't, really didn't mean that. I'm sorry. No, he's going to expect, if you make a vow, if you make a promise to God, then he's going to come alongside and say, okay, where is it that you promised me? And oftentimes we go, oh, I didn't realize you were ready for that. I wasn't ready. Sorry. Forgive me. I'll, I'll come back around to that maybe another time. Anybody make New Year's resolutions? You make that vow, you make that promise to do this or that. And two days later, crash and burn. Yeah, we have a hard time paying our debts, don't we? Why should God be angry at your voice, he says, and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So let me just say this. Can we please stop trying to rob God of what he wants us to understand about himself? Because all we do is come to him and say, God, if you will just do this for me, then I will enter fill in the blank. You ever heard that common prayer? I'm struggling. I'm tired. I'm fearful. I got some anxiety. God, if you will just do this, then I will promise to read my Bible more, promise to go to church more, promise to give more, promise to, to serve you more, promise to go and feed the homeless, promise to go on a mission trip. I promise I'll do all these things, Lord, if you will just give me this. It's a common prayer and the vows that we make. So God is saying, and even Solomon is saying, don't even make a vow if you have no intent to keep it because oftentimes in our sinful nature, when we get what we want, what do we do? We just go about our life and forget the rest because we've gotten what we wanted. God is saying, don't even, don't even make a vow if you're not going to pay up. God has kept every single promise he has made to us. God has kept and fulfilled every single promise he has made to us. I think it's important that we keep our promises to him, no? 
God is holy. And he's worthy of our praise. He's holy and worthy of our praise. Therefore, if you make a promise to the Lord, follow through. As hard as it is, follow through. But you don't have to make a promise. There is nothing in Scripture that says you have to promise the Lord this or that. He doesn't need your promises. He needs your heart. He wants your life. He wants relationship with you above all else. You know, even just this morning as, as we were singing the song, As the Deer, the first song that we sang, there are, there are words in that song that says, You alone are my heart's desire. We sing these lyrics, but do we mean them? Are we vowing to God that you alone are my heart's desire? Is he? I long to worship you. Do you? <laughs> it's okay to say no. It's okay to not sing these lyrics if you don't mean them. You see what I'm saying? It's okay. But if you want to follow through and say, you alone are my strength and my shield. I want you more than gold or silver. I want God more than money. I want God more than material possessions. I want God more than anything that this world can offer. And one of the lines in that song is, I surrender all. <laughs> Do you? Have you? Or should we say, I surrender almost? Because I'm not really willing to give up this or that. I still got a tight grip on this thing that I love, that I really spend a lot of time on. It may not really glorify God and whatever else, but God, it's mine. I just, I love it. So God is saying, I'd rather you not sing those lyrics if you're not going to mean them. But if you're going to sing them, then follow through on those promises. See, there's a saying that goes, say what you mean and mean what you say. Right? Be true to your words. Hold fast to the promises of God. Be disciplined and obedient that if you're going to offer him something, follow through and, and offer it. Lay it down. Bring it to him. Even James chapter 5, verse 12 says, But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by anything, excuse me, by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So let me ask you this When do we typically offer our words to the Lord? When do you typically have a conversation with the Lord? In prayer, right? Typically in worship and prayer. So I want you to think about this now as we, as we look at this concept of prayer and as Solomon is saying that in what he's witnessing of people making these vows and, and making all these offerings and bringing all this stuff to the Lord and, and all the, the holiness and righteousness that a lot of us put on when we step into a church building. But he's saying when you speak to the Lord... What are we really offering? In fact, Jesus gave us a, a good picture of this. In Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, right? the religious elite, the, 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 the guy that's supposed to know every ounce of Scripture and live it out and hold people accountable to it. And people look to him as, as the ones to model their lives after. See, a priest goes up to, to pray he says also a tax collector goes up to the temple to pray. A tax collector. In, in, in Jewish life and society, the lowest of the low, right? 
our very own Matthew, tax collector. So a priest goes, a Pharisee goes up to pray, and a, and a tax collector goes up to pray. And the Pharisee, Jesus said, standing by himself, and the picture is he stands in the middle of everybody, separating himself from everybody, and in a loud voice he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. These extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or, or looking at the tax collector, even like that guy. Thank you that I'm not like them. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Even Jesus goes on and says that tax collector standing far off, basically in a corner, would not even lift up his eyes to the Lord. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want you to think about that. If you've ever gotten to that point, you know, in our culture and, and day and age, we typically don't beat our, beat our breasts. But that idea of, I'm so torn, I'm so ripped apart right now. You know, I, I had this very bad habit as an, as an athlete in high school. When I was playing football or soccer or whatever else, if I made a mistake or had a penalty called on me or I didn't do something I thought I could do and you know, just messed up, my typical response and anger would be go and kick something as hard as I could or punch something, a wall or a bench or slam my fist down or take my helmet off and throw it onto the ground like a big old baby. In fact, my soccer coach in high school when I was a senior called me out on that at our, our banquet at the end of the year. So Cam, he's a solid player. He's a hustler. He did his best that he could. But man, if he made a mistake, watch out. Because he'd come out on the sideline. He'd take it out on our big old bag of soccer balls. Because I'd probably come over and I'd just kick those things or kick something or whatever else. And, you know, that's kind of like the, the beating of, my, of our, you know, what he's saying there. We get so mad at ourselves, or, or in this case, this, this tax collector is in humility is saying, I am so wretched of an individual i can't even look at you god i can't even lift my eyes up because if i make connection to you there's intimacy there and i'm not worthy of that he says i'm just a sinner and what did jesus say about him i tell you that that man that tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other see god isn't asking for our promises he's not asking for our our pride of, of religiosity, of, of tithing and giving and the sacrifices we make and, and whatever else to show the world how much of a follower in Christ we are. He says, I just need humility. I need a broken spirit. That's what I'm looking for in prayer. You know, before too many say, I really don't know how to pray. Well, he just gave you an example. If we stand up today and if I stood here and opened in prayer and just said, God, we're not worthy to be in your presence. We're nothing but wretched sinners. Amen. Let's get into the word. That is a prayer God wants if we mean it from our heart. It doesn't have to be long and drawn out. It doesn't have to have fancy words. But a lot of people get embarrassed. They, they kind of clamp up. They, they kind of get tight when it comes to prayer, especially speaking those prayers out loud because... Well, I'm not, I don't pray very well. I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. Well, here's some encouragement for you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul writing to the church saying, Likewise, the Spirit 
helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So there you go. God's word just eliminated an excuse for you and how you pray. He says you don't have to even say any words. If you don't know how to pray, if you don't know what you should pray for, then you just drop your head in reverence to God and let the Spirit in you intercede on your behalf. I mean, how cool is that? To let the Spirit of God pray my prayers for me. Now, He wants us to open our mouth. He wants us to speak. There is relationship there. But sometimes you just... Yeah, I, <laughs> That's all we can get out sometimes. I don't know what to pray because I'm angry or I'm frustrated or I'm tired. I, just, I can't put nice melody words together and, and sound right to you guys. I don't, I don't need that. I just want your... I want your frustration. Give me your groans. Give me your silence. If we're focusing our attention on on who he is. If we don't know how to pray, then that's okay. Groan and let the Spirit intercede for you because he knows your heart. But Jesus also gave us a beautiful way to pray, didn't he? Didn't he teach us how to pray? Didn't he give us a beautiful model in how to pray? And we're going to use the one in Luke chapter 11. It's the Lord's Prayer. But I want to, I want to, I pick this version because I want to show you something in it. Luke 11 verses two through four, the disciples came up to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. When you go off by yourself, you say you're going to go and pray. But what does that mean? How do we do it? Well, Jesus said, when you pray, say this, father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day, our daily bread and forgive us of our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Anybody time that? How long that took to, to say? A few seconds? 30 seconds if you speak slow. See, now we understand that that's a model prayer. You can add more to that if you want. That's a, a skeleton, an outline of a prayer. But, but there's a very specific order in which we are to bring ourselves and our requests to the Lord. You see how it started though? And that's what we need to point out. Very specific order, he says, when you pray, pray like this, Father, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? It means his name is sanctified. His name is holy. When you are coming into the presence of God, understand who you are in front of, who you are spiritually on your knees or physically on your face in front of. He is holy. He is God. He is creator. He is Lord. He is majesty. He is everything that we could ever want or need in life. Remember who you are coming before. Give him the praise and honor that is due his name. Somebody by the name of Daniel Henderson, we just recently heard this, said the motivation of prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. So seek his face before you seek his hand. It's good, isn't it? Seek his face before you seek his hand, meaning look at him. Scripture says, seek the face of God. Look him in the eyes, spiritually speaking, and just reflect on the beauty of who he is before you ask for something from him. See what we're saying? Oftentimes we go to the Lord and say, dear Lord, 
And for a lot of people, that kind of satisfies that whole first part of hallowed be your name. And for some, okay, and I'm not here to judge prayers. That's not my part. But if we could spend just a moment and say, God, worthy is your name. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for blessing us with, with your presence, for giving us the gift of your son, the blood of his salvation and his sacrifice on the cross so that we could be free. You see, when we get into that mode and start that way, you see what starts to dissipate? See what starts to eliminate from our heart and our mind? The cares and the worries and the stress and everything else that we initially came to him with. See, just being in his presence melts all that away if we could just focus on the glory of his name but the prayer goes on it says your kingdom come and matthew says your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven meaning what when jesus started his ministry he came on the scene and said repent for the kingdom of god is at hand his whole ministry was preaching the kingdom of god Paul's ministry was preaching the kingdom of God. When we studied the book of Acts, we began with a message about the kingdom of God. Jesus' commission to his disciples about the kingdom of God. And then Paul ends his life in Rome ministering, teaching about the kingdom of God. That bookend of Acts and the bookend of Scripture is all about the kingdom of God. So when we come before the Lord in prayer, we recognize who he is, but then we also wait and think about, okay, Lord, in your glory, and your majesty, what it is that you need me to do. I'm here to serve you. I am your servant. Therefore, rather than just give me what I am asking for, how can I participate in your kingdom and the expanse of it here and now while I have breath in my lungs? See, we wait on the Lord. We be still and know that he is God. We honor him and then wait for him. But that doesn't mean the prayer is over. There's a next step. Give us this day our daily bread. See, Jesus asked us to ask. <laughs> he says it's okay to ask, okay to make your request before the Lord. Make your request, but then put that request in context of who God is and what he wants to do in your life, what he's done for your life, where he has you and how he wants to use you. And then he says, go ahead and make your request. Listen, it does not discourage you, should not discourage you from making requests. It does, it's not meant to say, he's so holy, you should never ask him for something. No, that's not the case. It's not what we see in Scripture. We need his strength. We need patience. We need peace. We need healing. We need, you know, we need some financial help because sometimes we're just, we're falling down. If we don't make payment, we just need God to provide in some sense, in some way. That is the Lord, our God. He is provider. He's healer. He's everything. He asks, asks us to ask for what we need. But what does the prayer say? Give us this day, this day. Because that's all you need. Matthew 6 later on says, Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Worry about today. How many of you could agree to the fact that from the time you wake up to the time you clock out of work and get home, you've got plenty to worry about? So ask him for what you need. Give me this day what I need. Let tomorrow worry about itself. 
But think about what are you requesting? Why are you requesting it? For whose glory and honor are you requesting? There's things that we need, but in light of who God is and what he wants us to do, everything that we want to receive or should receive from him that day is to honor and glorify him in the ministry he's given us in our job and our family and in society and our community around us. He wants us to ask. Never be afraid to ask, but do so in that model after you've sought his face. Seek his face. Spend time with him. And then in that light, in that context, ask for what you need. And when you don't know what you need, then just be silent in front of him and let the Spirit intercede on your behalf. He knows your heart. Give us what we need this day, Lord. Forgive our sins so that we may walk on the holy ground that you have laid before us, keeping our eyes fixed on you. And in so doing, we will not fall into temptation this world will set before us. You see, if we follow the model of that prayer that Jesus taught us, that holy ground we walk on because of who we serve and why we do what we do, it's going to put a lot of things into perspective. So with all that in mind, Solomon is saying, guard your steps as you enter the house of God, as you walk with God. And the whole rest of the chapter, verses 8 through 20, It'll put it into perspective if we keep that first part in mind. So I'm going to go through the rest of the chapter really quick. But keep that in mind what we just talked about, and we'll see if all this makes sense. You ready? Verses 8 and 9, if you see a province in the province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at that matter, he says. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. What is Solomon saying? Don't worry yourself about those in authority because God has placed them in authority for a purpose because somebody is over them. Nobody on this planet under the sun has tyrannical dictatorship rule over your life because God is always over the highest authority that we can set our eyes on. Romans 13, 1 says that, doesn't it? For there is no authority except from God. And we, sometimes we don't understand, God, why? <laughs> why that person? Why that person? I don't understand. Good. You're not supposed to understand. Keep your eyes, your heart on me because that person is in authority. That's a part of my plan that you may not understand and be okay with that. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Very simply put, you can't love God and money. You can't love God and bow down to the idolatry of materialism. You can't do it. Scripture's clear. Jesus said it. Matthew 6, you cannot love God and money. Verse 11 and 12, when goods increase, they increase to eat them. Meaning the more you get, the more wealth you achieve, Guess who comes out of the woodworks to participate in that? All of a sudden, you find family members you never heard of before asking for a handout. All of a sudden, you've got people coming to you looking for help and, and whatever else. So as your goods increased, those that increase come with them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. We'll say that again. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, 
but the full stomach of the rich will never let him sleep. See, the more you consume in your life, the more you worry yourself about riches and, and the accumulation of wealth and material gain for solely that purpose, the more anxiety, stress, and worry you have day after day to make sure you maintain those riches, to maintain that lifestyle, and maintain and worry about those that might come and take it from you. And what happens if I lose it all? You see the, what goes on in your mind when you can just say, Lord, I'm content in you. And at night, I can sleep and I can rest knowing you're going to provide for me. No matter where I'm at in life, rich, poor, somewhere in between, God is in control. Matthew 6, 24, again, you cannot serve God in money. And verse 25, that's why Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Moving on in verses 13 through 17, Solomon says, There is a grievous evil. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. You see people pine for wealth, pine for riches, to accumulate all that wealth for what? They're planning for the future when they have no idea what turning the next corner is going to bring. I'll just put it this way. You may have heard this before. Have you ever seen a hearse towing a U-Haul? No, because you can't take anything with you. Now, very quickly, I'm not speaking against planning for retirement. I'm not talking about having a nice savings because we don't know what's going to happen economically or whatever else in our day and age. It's, there's a, a lot of uncertainty in that. So we plan for the future. But again, how are you planning? Why are you planning? Why are you accumulating those things? You might be saving for retirement, but are you saving to enjoy your life? Are you saving to sip umbrella drinks on the beach? Or are you saving for the glory of God? Are you investing in the kingdom of God as he asks us to participate in? Something we have to consider. There is value in savings. There is value in retirement. But as many have said, technically there is no retirement in the kingdom of God. You retire when he brings you home in glory. Then he says, and that's why he says, enter into your rest. Something we need to think about. So to finish this out, verses 18 through 20. Solomon ends on a good note. We need that, yes? Amen? Let's end on some positivity this morning. He says in verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. 
See, we've been talking about that from chapter 1. Chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5. Now, enjoy the life God has given you. If you can't enjoy what God has given you, no matter where you sit on that spectrum of income or whatever else, then you need to reestablish your heart and vision to the face of God. Well, I'm poor compared to this person. I don't have as much as that person. I've been struggling to keep up with my neighbors because they just keep, we, I mean, we kind of work a similar job. They keep getting toys and toys and, 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 and doing all this stuff. And I got to keep up and I got to keep up. You see the worry and the fear and the anxiety that that brings in when we can just settle in and breathe in the presence of God and say, thank you for what I have. Thank you for the job I have. I don't need to compare myself to anybody. That's going to rob me of the joy that God wants to give me. But I can just serve him and be a blessing to others. So this is how we can summarize all this. In the words of the great theologian Warren Wiersbe, he says, if we focus more on the gifts than on the giver, we're guilty of idolatry. If we accept his gifts but complain about them, we're guilty of ingratitude. If we hoard his gifts and will not share them with others, we are guilty of indulgence. But if we yield to his will and use what he gives us for his glory, then we can enjoy life and be satisfied. Amen? In every way, be satisfied in who God is and how you're serving the Lord and participating with him. As his spirit is in you, as you're walking, guarding your steps, walking worthy of who he has called you to be, no matter the context, because this is not our world. We don't reside here. We are temporary visitors, passers through, ambassadors, because our residence is in glory. So have that perspective about the life God has given you. Work that way, live that way, operate that way, speak that way. And in that way, you're going to give the world a new perspective of who Jesus is, a fresh perspective, the right perspective of who God is and who he needs us to be.